Hey, this is Shane Valenstein, the pastor at City on a Hill Community Church. I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. I hope that this podcast helps you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at cityonahillmd.org. Enjoy the message. Today, we're wrapping up our Reclaimed series. This is the last week of this series, and all month long, we've been going through the book of Ezra, okay? It's like a walk through the book of Ezra, and we've been, we've been looking at, at events that took place in the book of Ezra, and then we're trying to apply those lessons that we're learning to our lives today. So in the first week, we talked about um, a guy named King Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, who, um, the, if, you, if you weren't here for the first week, uh, and by the way, you can go and watch all of our um, sermons on YouTube, or we have podcasts, you can go and, and catch up on them. But the first week, we talked about King Cyrus who um, the Israelites, they were in exile. They were taken captive by the Assyrians, who were then taken captive by the Babylonians, who were then taken captive by the Persians, okay? So it's a long, long thing here. And King Cyrus, he was the king of Persia, and once Persia took over, took, took the Babylonians captive, and the Israelites were a part of that, he made a decree and said, hey, to the Israelites, if you want to go home and rebuild your home, which is Jerusalem, you are free to do that, and some of the Israelites were like, absolutely, we want to go home and put in the work to rebuild their city that was destroyed. And then other Israelites were like, eh, I'm good. I'm just going to kind of hang out here. I'm comfortable. I, I don't really want to put in the work that it's going to take to rebuild our home. And so they, some of them stayed, some of them came home. Then in the second week, we talked about a guy named Zerubbabel and his, his work leading the rebuilding of the temple which is extremely important for the Israelites, rebuilding the temple, which is the house of God. And um, they had to take time to do this. And what we learn is that opportunity welcomes opposition. When the opportunity presents itself, opposition is not far behind. There will be opposition whenever there is an opportunity to do something big. And it could, be, it could look in all different ways. And Zerubbabel and the Israelites, they faced generational opposition meaning there were like the older Israelites who weren't happy with the way that the younger Israelites were doing things, and then the younger Israelites weren't very nice to the older Israelites. It was a whole mess, and really not a lot has changed in our world and in church today, right? And then last week, we talked about a guy named Ezra who focused on the rebuilding of the spiritual life of the Israelites. So he wasn't rebuilding a physical structure. He was rebuilding the spirituality of the Israelites, which is extremely important. And we learned that, that, that he had really good leadership qualities. He led by being audacious, by being bold, by not being afraid to ask for, for help in different areas. He was also prepared, and, and he recognized sin for what it is, which is sin, which is kind of not as much in our world today. A lot of times when we see sin, we just kind of push it to the side, brush it to the side because we don't want to offend anybody. But it's important to call sin, sin, and recognize it for what it is. So, um, and the last week, it brought us to the end of the book of Ezra, and this is a walkthrough of the book of Ezra, right? But as we talked about um, in, in week one, the following book after Ezra is a book named Nehemiah. And at one time, Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book together because it's a continuation of the story. It's telling the same story. So we're going to pick up in, in Nehemiah, and, uh, and we're going to look at the, the story of a guy named Nehemiah. So we talked about Zerubbabel, we talked about Ezra, and now Nehemiah. And all three, all three people had parallel stories. 
right? They, they followed kind of the same sort of setup. And uh, the, story, the stories focus on rebuilding or restoring something. Zerubbabel with the temple, Ezra with, with the people and the spirituality of the people, and then Nehemiah, he came to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem, which is extremely important. So all three stories, they face opposition and struggles along the way, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. So Nehemiah starts off just like Zerubbabel and Ezra. He's back in Babylon, okay? And he's working as the cupbearer to the king of Persia, which is no longer Cyrus, but is now a guy named King Artaxerxes. Being the cupbearer to the king is a big deal. It's a, it's a very big deal. Each meal, Nehemiah would have to test the king's wine and his food to make sure that it wasn't poisoned, which in and of itself is terrifying, right? Like that, that was his job. But in order to be the cupbearer to the king, the king had to trust you, right? You couldn't just have somebody that you didn't trust as a cupbearer because that person is literally protecting your life. So to make it to, to the point where you are the cupbearer to the king in ancient times, it meant that, one, he was close to the king in public, and it meant that he was trusted, and he had influence. Being that close to the king meant that they had a relationship. And with him being an Israelite, Nehemiah, being, him being an Israelite and then being the cupbearer to the king of Persia said a lot about Nehemiah. He, he wasn't Persian. He wasn't Babylonian. So for him to be the cupbearer, it's like, oh, he must have his stuff together. The, the king trusts him here. So this is where the book of Nehemiah starts, right? And it's, almost, it's been almost a century since the, since the Cyrus decree that we talked about two weeks ago. So it's been a long time, okay? Time, time has gone by. And, and when he allowed the Israelites to return home. So the, so the book of Nehemiah, it starts off like this. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, I don't know how to say that, but that sounds good to me. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So we see right here, right away, something interesting about Nehemiah. First thing that we see is this, is that he cared. He simply cared. He cared about his home. His heart broke for his people, and he wanted to make a difference. Now remember, Nehemiah, he was not, he's never been to Jerusalem. Even though this is his heritage, this is his home, he was born in captivity just like Ezra was, just like Zerubbabel was. Because years before that is when the Israelites went into exile before they were born. So now all that they know is exile and captivity. So to hear about his home, it's kind of interesting because he's never been there. I don't know if like maybe you were born in a different city, but you were just like a baby, and then your parents moved when you were one year, one year old or something like that, when you were a kid, and you don't really remember. Maybe you, were, maybe you were born in California or something, but you've lived here basically your whole life, and you would call this your home because you don't even remember living in California or wherever else it may be. That's, that's even more so for Nehemiah. He wasn't even born in Jerusalem, but he still cared about his home. Why? 
because it's his home. It's his heritage. So today we're going to look at the different ways that Nehemiah cared and what his caring caused him to do. So the first thing that we see with Nehemiah is this. He cared enough to ask about what is happening. That's just simply to ask. Because it says in verse 2, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from, Judah, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Have you ever heard the old adage, what you don't know can't hurt you? Right? What you don't know can't hurt you. It's not exactly a true statement, but some of us live by that statement. <laughs> what I don't know won't hurt me. I remember... Um, uh, uh, it's kind of, well, it's kind of like when the check engine light in your car comes on, right? And you're like, hmm. I remember an episode of The Simpsons a long time ago, and uh, uh, the check engine light was on, and, and Homer was driving the car, and Lisa was next to him, and she said, Dad, what's the check, en- check engine light is on? And he goes, oh, I'll fix it. And he just put a piece of duct tape over it. And he said, all right, <laughs> right? That's what we do. The check engine light comes on, and we're like, I'm just going to ignore that because what I don't know won't hurt me, right? If I, if I don't know what the problem is, then, then it's no, no real issue. And um, it's important. See, Mark, Mark Twain, he once wrote, all you need in life is, all, all you need is this in life, ignorance and confidence. Then success is sure to come. <laughs> ignorance and confidence. See, sometimes we would rather not know about an issue so that we don't have to fix it. And so if I don't know, if I'm ignorant, ignorance is bliss, right? If I'm ignorant to whatever the problem is, then I don't have to be the one to fix it. But the minute that a problem is presented to me, now I have to deal with it. I would rather just not know. I would rather just go about my life. Maybe... Maybe your parents said to you at one point, don't, don't tell me, don't tell me what you did in college. I just don't want to know, right? Don't tell me what you did with your friends. I just don't, I don't want to know. And if you're ignorant enough and confident enough, then your kids will be perfect, right? That combination of ignorance and confidence makes us think that things are fine when really they're not, when really there are issues, we just sweep it under the rug and choose to ignore it because we don't want to face the issue. See, Nehemiah, he didn't live by that saying because he saw his fellow Israelites come home. And the first thing that he does, he says, okay, give me the truth. How is it? What's going on? Because he, he has a suspicion, right? He, he probably already knows that the situation is not very good. And the Israelites have been home. They've been back home for you know, almost a, a, a century at this point. So it's been a long time. And you would think that at this point, they would have things up and running, that, that they would be okay at this point, that they, they would get to a point where they would be like, okay, we've rebuilt the city. We've rebuilt the spirituality of the people. We're, we're going in the right direction. You would think that things would be good, but they're not. They're still kind of falling apart. And they come home from Judah, and Nehemiah says, how is it? What's going on? Is, are things okay? Because he wanted to know, because he cared. He wanted to know the truth. He wanted to know the real answer, not something that is sugar-coated. 
I don't know how often we want to know the real answer in our lives. I, I think that a lot of times we get to a place where we just choose to not face something because either we're scared, we're lazy, we're nervous, we don't know what this is going to mean for me personally or the other relationships in my life, if I have to face this problem in my life, if I actually have to face what I'm dealing with head on, what does that mean? It's not going to be fun. And so be, instead of facing it, we just push it off. I don't, I don't have to see it. I don't have to see it. I don't have to see it. I'm just going to ignore it. And it never actually solves the issue. Never actually fixes anything. See, do we want facts or are we willing to accept facts realizing that they will burden us? Nehemiah knew that there was probably a burden that was going to follow once he asked the question about how things are. See, um, George Bernard Shaw said these words in his play, The Devil's Disciple. The worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. I think that says a lot. Because now we're not even talking about our personal issues, right? We're talking about issues in the world. And a lot of times, if it doesn't affect me, then I'm simply indifferent. If it's not my problem, then it's not my problem, right? If, if, if it's not affecting me in my personal life, then I just don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it. And George Bernard Shaw would say, the worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent toward them. Basically, to just be like, yeah, I just don't care. I don't care about you. I don't care about what you're dealing with. I don't care about what's going on in your life. I don't actively hate you. I don't want you to go through those things. I don't care because I'm doing my own stuff. You've got your stuff over there. Keep it over there. I mean, think about Nehemiah. He is hundreds of miles away, living a pretty nice life with the whole, like, exception of possibly drinking poison part. But outside of that, outside of that, he's living a cushy life. He's close to the king. He has influence. He has power. He has respect. He has all of these things. He's living in the palace, basically. He's right there with the king at all times. He could easily be like, Jerusalem, yeah, I guess it's my heritage, but it's 900 miles away. I, I've never been there. I've never spent any time there. It's not my fault that the city fell apart. It was before my time, right? And this is, this is what we do. We blame other people, and then we think, now I don't have to deal with it because I'm not to blame. Because I'm not the one who's at fault here. I'm a millennial. Millennials be like, well, it's the boomer's fault, right? Or Gen X. How come the Gen X generation never gets any? They, they're like the perfect generation. Everybody loves them. But like boomers, everyone's like, oh, boomers are the worst. And then the boomers before them, before the generation before them, they're like, oh, well, they're, the reason why I have my problems is because of that generation. And it keeps going down the line, right? The Gen Z generation is blaming the millennials for everything. It just keeps going down the line. And we always want to put the blame on somebody else. And nobody wants to take the responsibility of actually doing anything about it. None of us actually want to fix it. And Nehemiah, 900 miles away from Jerusalem, asks about the, his home. 
He wants to know what's going on. And then here's what happens. We already established that he cares. He cares enough first to ask. The second thing is he cared enough to weep and to pray over his home. In verse 4, Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, not only do we need to ask about what's going on in other people's lives, in, in, in the world, in your life, not only do we need to ask, the next question is, what breaks my heart? What is it that really breaks my heart? See, whatever makes people laugh or whatever makes people weep is often an indication of character. Often. See, if, if you laugh at others' mistakes or misfortunes, but you weep over trivial personal disappointments, you're lacking character. If, if you look at other people's misfortunes and you go, those idiots, look at, look at how terrible of a situation they're in. They took a submarine down to the Titanic, right? Oh, my goodness, look, look at these idiots. Oh, look at these mistakes that this celebrity is making. Look at this person. Who's, and we laugh and we find joy in other people's misfortunes. And then when it comes to my own trivial personal disappointments, we weep over it and we expect everybody else to cater to us all the time. Does your heart break for things only that directly affect you? Because if that's the case, you are a selfish person. If you only get upset over things that impact you and you couldn't care less about what happens to other people around you, your character is very, very shallow. There's no way around it. It's, it's an indication of who you are. Does your heart break for people in need? Or, only you, or, or are you only focused on you? Nehemiah hears about other people in need, and he breaks down in tears. Not because of his personal situation, but because of others that he cares about. Breaks down. And Nehemiah received this report while he was sitting in a great position hundreds of miles away where he has nothing to worry about, nothing at all. He had a great salary, great power, great position, a sweet 401k. He was set up, set up for life. But he's still, his heart breaks because it's his home. Why should he even worry about Jerusalem? There's really no reason outside of his ancestors, who, who messed it up in the first place. There's no real reason if we look at it based on the way that we operate in our world. If, if we look at it w the way that our world says to live, right? A dog-eat-dog -dog world, take care of you, don't worry about anybody else. If you do that, then, then you'll be fine. Everyone else can fend for themselves. It's a terrible way to go about life. The question is, do you care about more than you? And really, you're the only one who knows the answer to that. And, it, and if you truly don't know, then you got to look at two things, your bank account and your time. That's what you have to look at. If your bank account and your time only reflect you, then there's your answer. But if your bank account and your time reflect other people, helping other people, 
then you care about others. Do you know why it's your bank account and your time? Because those are the two most important things to us, our money and our time. And what we do with the things that are most important to us reflects where our priorities lie. And if our priorities lie in ourselves, then we're going to use all that stuff on me, 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 me all the time. And when other people come along and they say, hey, can you help me move? And you're like, oh, um, let me check my calendar and get back to you. Hey, I, I could really help. I, I could really use some help in this area. Will you, would you be able to come over and do this? Oh, um, let me check in with the wife, right? Kids are the greatest excuse to get out of things, aren't they? It's like, oh, um, yeah, my son Charlie, he has a fever. I have to go home now, right? Like we, we make up all of these excuses because we don't actually want to help anybody else. We only want to do what we want to do when it benefits us. And if we are helping somebody else, the question that we often ask is, well, what's in it for me? Sure, I will help, but now I've got one in my back pocket to use later when I need help from you. Our motives are so unbelievably selfish. What is most important to us? Nehemiah is heartbroken over the state of the Israelites at home. The walls are destroyed. They are at risk, and they need help. He couldn't ignore it. Do you ever see a problem in the world where you go, I can't ignore this any longer? I can't. The way that these people are being treated, the way that these people could use help, whatever it may be, in any situation, he couldn't ignore it any longer. It broke his heart, and then he turned to God. So not only did it break his heart, but then he started fasting and praying and talking to God and allowed God to continue to stir in him what he could do, the impact that he could make. And then finally, it doesn't end there. Care enough to ask, care enough to weep and to pray, but then care enough to step up to the plate too. It doesn't end with just asking how somebody's doing. It's not, that's not the end of it. Because it says in chapter 2, verse 5, this is what Nehemiah did. <coughs> Excuse me. He goes to the king, and he says, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. So we just talked about how Nehemiah wept and he prayed, but he didn't stop. It's, it is great to offer our prayers to people. It's great to do that. But, Christians, we need to listen to this. We can do more. And this isn't to minimize prayer, okay? I need to make sure that you're not twisting my words. But Christians are really good at being like, praying for you, and then we just go back to our life. How good are we at that? And we think, I did my good deed for the day. I told them I'm praying for them, whether I actually do or not. I don't know. We'll see if I, if I think about it. But, or maybe you do. Maybe you do. That's great, too. That's great. But if the only way that you ever care about helping is to say, hey, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm out, and then you're on your own, it's pretty sad. There's more that we can do. We can actually have an impact here. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm not saying that prayer isn't powerful. And some things only prayer can fix. Because some things only God can fix. 
So I, don't, don't twist my words. But it has been said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but rather getting God's will done here on earth. And maybe you are the tool that God is going to use to accomplish that. Maybe, maybe God's saying, it's great that your heart broke over this. It's great that you're thinking about this and that you're praying about this. But hey, why don't we roll up our sleeves and get to work? Hey, why, I, I can use you to, to, to maybe meet a need here. But for God's will to be done on earth, people need to be available and willing to be used. It's the truth. But a lot of us, eh, I don't know. I don't really feel like it. See, if God is going to answer prayer, then he must start by working within the one who is doing the praying. That's where it starts. If we actually take the time to have our hearts broken, if we actually take the time to ask, if we actually take the time to pray over these things, then we can, chances are, God is moving you in a direction to have some sort of an impact in it. See, God works in us and through us to help us. One of the interesting things about the ministry of Jesus when Jesus was here on this earth is that we read about the miracles that Jesus performed all the time. If you read the Gospels, we see Jesus healing the lame, um, healing the blind, you know, uh, taking care of situations, literally raising people back to life from the dead, children. We see him doing that. But it's not like Jesus walked through all of the towns and healed every single person who was there. And sometimes, this can be a little bit of a struggle when you read the gospel because you're like, well, Jesus could, could literally just say the words and heal everybody, couldn't he? Yeah, he could. Absolutely he could. But he doesn't. Why? Why is that? I don't know if I have the best answer for it. But one thing that I know for sure is this, that the minute that sin entered this world meant that this world was broken. And the way that sin entered this world is because human beings chose to allow sin to enter this world. Because God did not create us as robots to only worship him at all times, where we don't have a choice, where we don't have a say in the matter. But rather, he created us to have the choice to choose him or not. Because that's what true love actually is. It's not love if you don't choose it. But when you choose it, despite, when you choose to love somebody, when you choose to love your spouse, despite all the times that they make you so angry, that's true love. God realized, if I just forced everybody to worship me, are they really? So he gave us the option because he wants us to choose him. I... I a lot of times when it comes to like the newborn stage of babies, it's great and all, but they're just kind of there, right? They're just kind of, they're just kind of, what, what do you do with them? Anthony, you're in the middle of it. Sloan's great and all, but like, what do you do, right? It's just like a baby. And, and I talk to a lot of people who, <laughs> I, love my, I love babies and all, but like, I, I I've talked to a lot, of, a lot of people who are like, oh, I just love the newborn stage because you can cuddle with them. And I'm like, they didn't choose to cuddle with you. 
Like you just pick them up and you grab them and they're just along for the ride. Like that's it. But you know what I really love? When my six-year-old daughter runs up to me and she says, Daddy, I love you. When, when, my, when my three-year-old son, Russell, runs up to me and he goes, Daddy, I love you. That's, that to me, is, that's when my heart's like, oh my goodness. And it's the same thing with the way that we go about our relationship with God. We have to choose him. So I know this is a long roundabout way of getting back to this, okay? But I didn't forget the original thought. The original thought was, why didn't Jesus heal everybody? Because Jesus didn't come to this earth to just heal our physical pain. He didn't come to this earth, he didn't promise to come to this earth to just take care of any little issue that we have. And a lot of times, if Jesus just came and fixed everything just like that, then we would miss out on the opportunity of being able to learn and to grow and to build relationships with one another by the way that we pick each other up, by the way that we help each other, by the community that we have. Because if we talk about church being a community, right? We talk about church being a home. What that means is we are there for one another. We hear about our brother or our sister who's hurting, who needs help. And we come alongside and we say, I'm here. I don't have all the answers, but I'm here. And I love you. And I want to help. And I want to support. That's what it means to be a community. That's what it means to be a church. When you hear about a problem, you don't have to be the one who fixes everything. But you can play a part. And playing a part means that you get to grow in addition to helping others. That's a cool part about life. So think about things. Ask about things. Care just to start off. See what needs to be done. Like Nehemiah, he didn't, he didn't pray for God to send someone else. He simply said, here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. He didn't say, God, can you raise up another leader in Jerusalem? He said, I know that I'm over here in, in, in Babylon or in Persia. I know that this is where I'm located. But God, if, if you want to use me, sure, I'll, I'll leave all this other stuff behind. Because your will is better than mine. Because what you have in store is greater than anything that I could ever imagine. And God, if you're calling me in this direction, then that's the direction that I want to go in. That's the direction I want to be in. Here am I. Send me. Nehemiah would eventually go on to Jerusalem. He would go back home, and this is a whole nother sermon that, that we don't have time to, to get into. We could talk about everything that he did while he was there. But the, the, the long short of it is this. Nehemiah would go on to Jerusalem, survey the damage, look at what was going on with the walls, talk to the people, recruit help, and rebuild the walls and the gates within 52 days. 52 days. Remember, it's been almost a century since the Israelites came home. And Nehemiah went home and rebuilt everything in 52 days. And it all started with a man who cared. That's where it started from. Cared to ask. Cared to weep. Cared to pray. Cared to volunteer. 
So if you care, that's the progression. That's what we have to look at. Again, it's not all on your shoulders. It's not. But this is not just for the benefit of others. This is for the benefit of you. There is no greater joy than serving the God of the universe. None. No greater joy. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team up as we get ready to close. And today, we are going to receive communion in a moment after we sing. If you didn't get a communion cup, um, uh, Pastor Nicole is here, and she can bring one to your seat when you walked in. There's also gluten-free wafers if, if you need that. Um, just raise your hand, and she'll bring you some. But as we get ready to receive communion, um, what we need to remember is this. God's sacrifice is what gave us the possibility to care about helping one another. God's sacrifice is everything. And communion represents two things. It represents his body being broken and his blood being shed. A willing sacrifice. That's what it is. Breaking his body on a cross, being beaten, being mocked, being looked down upon. And he took it, not because he didn't have a choice, but because he absolutely had a choice. And he cared about you and I more than anything else. His blood being shed is recognizing, and it's a representation.